0: Welcome to the Reach Podcast with your pastor Philip Jackson. There is a stirring, there is a hunger. Lord, we are thirsty to drink from you well. I'll hear the voices. Well, we are we're in a series of lessons where we're looking at the, the early church through the book of Acts, and we're looking at how God began to move in the first generation of the church. Um, we looked last week at the end of chapter one uh, at the uh, what it looked like for the uh, the disciples as they prayed about replacing Judas and the um, the challenges that they were the, as they as they sat there without any real guidance yet. Um, Jesus told them to go and to wait, and that's the only instruction that he gave them. And so. That's what they did. They went and they waited. And if you guys remember, the model was that um, they didn't just wait idly; they waited um, proactively. They spent time in God's Word. It says that they searched through the Scriptures to see exactly what God had said, what the promise was. Um, Jesus told them to go and wait until the Father sent what He had promised. And sure enough, that's that's exactly what happened. So what we're going to look at today is we're going to look at Acts chapter two. In Acts chapter two. Uh, for the first 37 verses, this is when the Holy Spirit comes on uh, on the people of God. The foundation of the Christian faith is built on this simple truth, that God wants to have a relationship with us, that God wants to restore what was broken, and that is our relationship with Him. And the most amazing part about that is that it's not just that God... He uh, stands at a distance and he uh, tells us to come to him, to earn our way to him. He actually goes out of his way to condescend, to make a relationship possible with us. He's the one that bridges the gap. In every other religion in the world, they're built on this idea that you have to earn salvation, whether it is now nirvana, whether it is the tranquility, whether it is your regeneration, in, uh, in reincarnation, whatever it may be, everything is based on your works. But the, but the faith of the Bible, Christianity, that's built on the testimony of Jesus Christ and what God has done is different than all, of, all other religions because it is the only religion in which God actually cares enough about us to come and get us. But God wasn't just content to leave things there. One of the most amazing things is that He has invited us to take part in what he is already doing to reach the nations for this gospel, this good news. Gospel just simply means good news. And so he has invited us to be a part of this story with him. We are not just spectators. We're not just, uh, we're not just getting paid with eternal life because of what God has done. He has actively said, I want you to be a part of what I'm doing. And in, in the process, you will actually learn to love me more. You will learn to know me better. And in the process of doing these things, God changes the world and we get a front row seat. So what we're going to see tonight is we're going to see the, uh, the disciples. Now that Matthias has been established to take Judas' place, we're going to see the 11 disciples praying in the upper room with about 120 people. And they're praying about what God's going to do next. And sure enough, the Holy Spirit comes on them. The Holy, the Holy Spirit descends and fills the room and they begin to do incredible things. And the world changes. It's astounding. So let me let me uh, remind some context here. So if you guys in your Sunday school class, I know that that uh, our Reach Sunday Bible study is going through the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth is actually connected to what we're going to read tonight, because the book of Ruth is actually read at this festival in the springtime called Pentecost. Now Pentecost takes place fifty days after um, after the Passover, so we're fifty days after the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, uh, when the Spirit of God descends on, the, on the, the apostles. This Pentecost is just a Greek name for the Jewish festival, and it's the festival of the first harvest. So in the, in the Jewish calendar, there are actually two harvests for the year. There's the barley harvest, which comes in the springtime, uh, or in, the, in what we would call summer. And then you have the wheat harvest, which is later in the year, in the fall. And so Pentecost is a celebration of the first harvest. The barley uh, ripens before anything else. And so one of the reasons why they recite the book of Ruth at the, at the festival of Pentecost is because Ruth comes back to, her, back to Naomi's native land in Israel during the first harvest. It is a celebration of God uh, bringing the first fruit of the land. And in fact, um, Jews from all around the world, they would make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem just to celebrate this festival, to, to celebrate what God had done. Uh, and as a result of what happened in this story that we're going to read tonight, Christians also celebrate this same day. This year, it's on June the 5th, this summer. Sometimes it's in, it's in late May, early June. And the idea is we're, going to, is we're is celebrating what God has done in, uh, at this moment in history. In fact, this idea of first fruits is something that the Apostle James talks about, uh, the brother of Jesus. He says that we, as the church, we are the first fruits fruits of God's redemptive story in creation. That we are, kind, we are the, uh, the initiation. We're kind of like the preview to what's going to happen in eternity. So what we get to experience through our life on earth is actually something that, we, that fulfills part of the promise that we're going, to, we're going to experience in its fullness in heaven. This is incredible. So all of these Jews have gathered to Jerusalem uh, from all around the world. Every single nation, they all speak different different languages. Um, and something that we need to understand here is that not everyone that's in Jerusalem speaks Hebrew. So think about it this way: if you guys have ever been to a a melting pot city, I'm talking like San Francisco or New Orleans or New York, Chicago, you have people from all different places, right? They speak all different languages. We're not; it's not like you know Tulsa, where everybody is basically the same almost. Really? You have this diverse culture. If you guys, how many of you have ever been outside of the United States? I'm curious. Okay. So you've experienced some of this, right? So if you've been in another country and you don't know the language, think about this. There are a lot of people around the world at this point in history who were Jewish um, by ethnicity, but they were not Jewish culturally. So these are people who come from all different walks of life. You have, you have Jews from Africa, who are descendant from the Queen of Sheba, who have, who have dark skin, dark-complected skin. You have Jews from Greece, who are as fair-complected as you can possibly imagine. You have Jews from Egypt. You have Jews from what is now present-day Russia, present-day Eastern Bloc countries like Slovakia and, uh, and Latvia. You have Jews from all over the world. And they've all come to Jerusalem for this festival to celebrate what God has done in providing for them. Okay, so this is the stage that's been set. So we're going to start here with this incredible opportunity. And I've, I've labeled this first point setting the stage because one of the things that is incredible about what God has, has asked us to do and has, has invited us to do is to take place in the process of redeeming the nations. So let's look at these first 13 verses. So he starts out by saying this. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other languages as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under, under heaven. And when the sound occurred... The crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Why, are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that each, we each hear them in our own language to which we are born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia, Pontius and Asia. Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own tongues, speaking the mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, they're full of sweet wine. A lot of great things in these first first several verses. So, we start off by seeing that there is a, a, this, there's a wind that comes into the, into the upper room where they've been sitting. What's interesting is that this isn't the first time in Scripture that we've actually seen this happen. We've seen this back in the Old Testament. We saw this whenever uh, Moses went up on the mountain and God descended in a pillar of fire and he gave the Ten Commandments. We see this whenever God claimed the tabernacle and filled it with his presence and he presented himself in fire. We see this also whenever God would lead the people of Israel for 40 years throughout the wilderness as a column of fire by night and a cloud of smoke by day. This is, a, this is a, uh, a picture of God presenting Himself to people. And in the same way that God has shown Himself in fire and smoke between Egypt and the Promised Land, He indwelled the new temple of His people, their bodies. For the first time ever, God descended and He filled human beings with His Spirit. Every other time that this has happened in Scripture up until this point, it has been for a specific moment or for a specific task. What's different about this from any other point in history is that for the first time ever, to complete what Jesus had said, the Holy Spirit has come on God's people and He has indwelled them. If you remember in the New Testament, it describes our bodies as the temples of the Holy Spirit. That now, instead of a fire in the Holy of Holies or in the, in, the, in the center of the tabernacle, now inside of God's people, there is a burning flame. There is a change that's happening. He describes this as flaming tongues. Each person received the gift of the Holy Spirit and the gift of speaking any language. The, the, the words that are used here where it says, these tongues fell on them. This is not to, this is not to describe what the fire looked like. This doesn't mean that, that these, these flaming tongues of fire... That they were uh, a physical, the physical attribute of a tongue. This is actually what we would describe as language. He lays on them a burning language, the gift to speak any language. This is not chaos. This is not Babel. This is very clear communication. This is not something that God is saying, okay, here is a secret, secret passcode language that only Christians are going to know. He says, no, for the first time in history, I'm going to rescind the curse of Babel. If you remember back in in the book of Genesis, whenever mankind only had one shared language, God makes an observation because the people of earth decide that they're going to build a monument to themselves as they build this giant tower at this place called Babel. Later becomes the city of Babylon. Babylon. They build this giant monument to themselves, and God, God makes an observation. He says this. He says, there is nothing that is impossible for man if they are unified. And so I'm going to scatter them across the earth. So for the first time since the curse of Babel, God gives a specific revelation to his people to speak in unity to history. To, to, to history. And so they had this gift to be able to speak any language. Now, don't be confused. This is not that they're speaking with the tongues of angels and all of these things. This is a specific language. It says that not only did they they speak a specific language, but they also were heard in a specific language. This is a two-sided miracle. It's interesting to note here that God's observation, specifically in Genesis 11, was the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all the same language, and this is what they have started to do. Now, nothing which they plan to do will be impossible for them. What's interesting is there is the response. Look at verses 5 and 6. Now, when the, now, there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. Verse 6, And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered, because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. The way that this is translated in the New American Standard is a a little different than than some others. Your Bible may say that they heard them in their native language. So what does this mean? This means that they didn't just get up and speak Greek because everybody spoke Greek at that point in history. This means that when they opened their mouths for the disciples, it says, in fact, that they are Galileans. They're, They're amazed that they're Galileans. This is saying these guys are a bunch of rednecks. How are they speaking Arabic? How are they speaking Coptic? How are they speaking Greek? How are they speaking Latin? How are they speaking Egyptian? How are they speaking all of these languages? There's no way that they're this educated because they're all saying this at the same time that everyone notices. You see, this, this is interesting because it underlines a key point because Jesus said that everyone comes to the Father is also called by Him. Not only had God utilized The mouths of these human beings to speak the truth. But he opened the ears of those that needed to hear the good news of the gospel. We often have this idea that the gospel is a sales pitch. That when we talk to people about Jesus and the hope that God has provided for us, that it's like we're trying to to work them into heaven. Like, what's it going to take for me to get you on board? If you get in early, you know, you'll have more rewards. This isn't a sales pitch. God is moving. That's one of, the, one of the principles of Scripture is that God is the one who moves and convicts. He moves on both sides of salvation. It underscores that He is the one who calls, saves, and sanctifies. In fact, 1 Peter says that all three persons of the Trinity complete our salvation, that we are called by the Father, and that we're saved by the sacrifice of the Son, and that we're sanctified by the work of the Holy Spirit. That all persons of the Trinity are involved in what God has done for us in the saving grace of our life. Look at verses 7 through 12. He continues on by saying that these people were amazed and astonished. They were amazed that these hillbillies were speaking truth in their own languages, their native languages. This reminds me of what Jesus said in Acts chapter 1. If you remember, he says to to his disciples and about the Holy Spirit, he says that they would receive a helper and that they would be taught by him. The Holy Spirit whom the Father would send in the same uh, that He sent Jesus, and He would teach them all things and remind them of all that He had said and that He had done. What's incredible about this point in history is that God had brought together a whole generation of people from all different backgrounds, from all different places, from all different languages, and they all had the same truth, in their hearts, all of them knew Scripture in their native language. The Romans knew the Old Testament, the promises and the prophecies of Christ. So did the Egyptians, and so did, so did uh, those that are in Asia, all over the world. God brought together a generation of people who knew His Word and were being exposed to the goodness of the gospel so that they could then take back the Scripture that they already knew and preach its fulfillment to their native countries. He was reaching the nations. This is the first time that God would send out missionaries. In fact, one of the groups that's mentioned in here are the Jews from Rome. It's believed that these Jewish Romans, that they took the gospel back to Rome and started a church and eventually received a letter from the Apostle Paul. We know it as the epistle to the Romans, explaining to them the differences between living as a Jew, or living as a believer in Christ, and how God has completed the law. See, the message here is also important, because just like before the disciples were equipped with the truth of God's Word and, were, and the teachings of Jesus, it says that they didn't just say words, it says that they spoke of the mighty deeds of God. They began to testify about Jesus. And of course, some in the crowd, they believed and they were curious, and they wanted to investigate more but others were beginning to mock them. It says that they were jeering them or that they were um, mocking them, saying that they were full of sweet wine. They're accusing them of being drunk. As we'll see here in a second, it's ridiculous because it's nine o'clock in the morning. It's like, I don't know who you all all think you are, but these guys are not drinking, especially this time of night or this time in the morning. So here's the thing, is that God has set the stage when we think about our relationship with Him and our responsibility to make disciples, it is very easy for us to take that load and throw it on our shoulders and think that we have to be the ones that have all the answers. But that's not the way that this works. The Holy Spirit is doing all of the work here. The only thing that the disciples do is they open their mouths. So do you ever feel like you're not qualified to disciple someone? Do you ever feel like you're not qualified to to speak the truth? Well, I have something sobering for you to think about. If you were a child of God, His Word says that you have the Holy Spirit inside of you to teach you all things. You have access to all truth. And sometimes, many times, all you have to do is open your mouth. Because if Satan can do anything in your life, he wants to shut down the influence of God's Word. And so these disciples, they realize that the table has been set. And so Peter, I love what God has done to Peter. This arrogant, quick-tempered, just pill of a man that God has crushed and made humble. Peter is the one who stands to speak. Check this out as he begins to explain the moment, the verses 14 through 21. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, I love the picture, of Peter and all the eleven. Matthias is there. Everybody's like, okay, Pete, this is your time. Let's do this. He raised his voice, verse 14, and declared to them, men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. He means nine o'clock a.m. Verse 16, but this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days God says that I will pour forth My Spirit on all mankind. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on, my, even on My bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth My Spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Peter speaks the truth. He begins by telling them to pay attention to his words. The people who were speaking uh, weren't drunk, but they were fulfilling what had been spoken through the prophet Joel. The reference to the third hour refers to 9 or 10 o'clock in the morning. What Peter is saying is here, he's saying, don't be ridiculous. This is so much bigger than just people having a good time or hungover from the night before. He says, this is a confirmation from what God's word says. Now bear in mind, again, we see the apostles not basing the the, the movement on their emotions or on how they feel. They are basing everything on the revealed word from God. Again, we see, we're going to see this over and over again as we look through the, the, the lives of the early church. That the foundation of all things is Scripture. Scripture, Scripture, Scripture. Always Scripture. That is the silver bullet of life. So he gets up and he speaks again. He speaks and he quotes from from the prophet Joel. This is the same thing that that Jesus had said that that the kingdom of God had come through his incarnation. And since the death, burial, and resurrection of the Christ, the new covenant had been established. Peter goes on to say that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, has been confirmed. And throughout the, the, the Bible, this illustration of fire is used to talk about God's Spirit. He says, guys, this isn't something that, that happens every day. Remember who we were in the wilderness? Remember who we were at Mount Sinai? Remember who we were when we worshiped the golden calf and God. Moved in judgment against us. You remember who we were. God said those things, and here we are now experiencing the exact same thing. Yikes! For those who are on the podcast, the curtain just fell. We're gonna we're gonna keep going. All right. Hope you guys are paying attention now. Excellent. So he begins to explain the moment. See, here's one of the things that that, that happens is that uh, God presents us with a situation, an, an opportunity. And we have the chance to be able to speak truth to our culture, to speak truth to, the, to, our, to our surroundings, to the people that are in our life. We have an opportunity to do these things. And yet, what do we do? We close our mouths. Why do we do that? You want an honest answer from me? I think it's because we don't know the word. Because we don't actually know what's happening. In our generation, we live in a, uh, in a self-centered, self-love-driven culture. We have a lot of labels and no depth. Do you want to know what to do with, with the environment that we live in? know God's word. You want to be able to answer hard questions for yourself and for your friends, your loved ones? Know God's word. If you want to be able to walk in victory and really know and have confidence about your future? Know God's word. Because it is sharper than any two-edged sword. Without God's word, there is no context for this. It is just an event that happens. So as Peter begins, as he explains, he can't help it. He moves, by the Holy Spirit, He moves into a command for action. Look at, look at these last several verses here, verses 22 through 37. He says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through Him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it is is impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope. Because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so, because he, he was a prophet and knew that God had, sh- had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne... He looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to whom we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? This command for action that Peter calls for in verses 22-37 He's establishing the credibility of the moment. He says, God's word said that this was going to happen, and now it is. So listen up, pay attention. He was the fulfillment of the messianic prophecies. Jesus was, and it was attested to them by God with miracles and wonders. He says, these aren't just stories that you heard about in a distant land. Many of you saw these things happen yourselves. You see, we don't have to make the case for God. He is really good at doing that for himself. There is no question that God cannot answer. There is nothing that should intimidate us about the gospel. He says, you saw this. This isn't just a story that you heard. Many of you were there at his crucifixion. He says he did miracles and signs and wonders. He was not just a man who rose and influenced by chance, but rather notice that it says that he rose from a predetermined plan and the foreknowledge of God. This means that his entire life was designed and orchestrated to complete what God had promised to Eve in Genesis 3.15 when he said he was going to restore the relationship between man and God. This happened on purpose. Is it any wonder that we live in a generation that works so hard to try to discredit the hope of God's Word? Peter doesn't pull any punches as to who is responsible for his death. Notice this that he says, you nailed him to a cross. The Greek here, the original language, is a special use of the language. You see, what's interesting, English has its own limitations. So in Greek, there's a couple of, of, of ways of speech that don't make sense in English. One of them is called the aorist tense. Okay, for us in English, we have, we have past tense, present tense, and future tense, right? What has happened, what's happening now, and what's going to happen in the future. Well, in Greek, there is this there is this function called the aorist tense, which means it is disconnected from from a moment in time. The word that he uses here, and you nailed him to a cross, it's all one word. It's a verb, and it implies that he's not saying that the, he's not saying that this crowd literally had a nail in their hand and they crucified him to the cross. But what he is saying is that they are complicit in it. He says you. Put Jesus on the cross. And the way that God's word is written here, it implies that all of us put him on the cross. Jesus was not crucified by first century Romans. I crucified him. You crucified him. You might be thinking, well, no, no, I'm, I'm a pretty good person. That's not what God's word says. You crucified Jesus. Peter says, no, 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 no. You don't get a pass. You don't get to say that you weren't responsible. You drove the nails through his hands. Peter also defines all men as godless. We've seen this before and all throughout Scripture that we are not good. Jeremiah 17 says that, that the heart of man is desperately wicked and no man can know it, but the Lord tests and tries the hearts and minds of men. But praise God that it didn't end there because He also continues to say that He was raised from the dead. His resurrection, He says, put an end to the agony of death because it was impossible for Him to be held in its power. I love I love this part of how God has written His Word because the, the, the original language here actually implies... That sin and death was literally not capable of holding him captive. U dumis, not possible, does not actually have the capacity in its infinity to hold him in the grave. This is astounding. Because what this says here is that God cannot be stopped by anything that the two things that we could never defeat sin and death can't even compare to the power of god we send we tend to think that oh well you know sin is my struggle it's one of those things that i just that i that i live in and i fight and i contend with every day do you realize that your father in heaven has defeated it it's done it's over we are fighting shadow wars It has been finished in all of its, all of its ways. There's nothing that can keep us from the love of God. The idea that God is the sole hope for humanity is not a new idea. Here's what I want you to think about. Peter goes on to tell these people, yeah, you, let me remind you about where we have been. He draws from the Psalms and he quotes David. David acknowledged that the Lord never left him during the struggles of his life. He says that he was continually before him, that that David was continually before God wherever he went. Now remember who David was. David is described in Scripture as a man after God's own heart. This guy is an adulterer. He's a cheater. He's a murderer. He's a betrayer of his best friends, and yet David's response, his view of God, is that no matter where he went, I was continually before him. And because of God's faithfulness, it says that David's heart was glad and his tongue was overjoyed, which allowed him to live in hope. His words are a testimony from the Old Testament that that God would go to unimaginable lengths to restore his creation. In fact, verse 27 here contains the promise that God would follow the crucifixion of Jesus with his resurrection. The promise that this was going to be fulfilled was, was made a long time ago. Thousands of years before Jesus walked on the earth, God said, I'm going to do these things. And Peter's saying, guys, why are you surprised? God said he was going to do this all along. This backwoods fisherman is speaking true theology to these, to these learned people presumably these wealthy people because they made the pilgrimage to Jerusalem from all over, all over the world. This wasn't like it is today where they could hop on a plane and they could just fly to Jerusalem. It cost them a fortune to get home to Jerusalem to make this pilgrimage from all these places. Who is this guy? But Peter's main point here is to contrast David with Jesus. He says that as highly as we hold David, he's still in the ground over here. We know where He's buried. But Jesus, Jesus is the one that David talked about, that he confidently says that we are witnesses of what the patriarch David prophesied when he foretold that the redemption of mankind would come through one of his descendants. And so I want to focus here on verses 33 through 37 because Peter now gets into the culmination of his sermon. Look at verse 33. He says, Therefore, Anytime we see the word, therefore, remember, we want to remember, we want to think about what is it therefore. It points to everything previous. So he says, I've set all this up. Now I'm going to make my point. Verse 33, therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the father, the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this, which you both see and hear. He says, Jesus is responsible for what you're seeing. Jesus is the one who's done this. You want to know why these people are speaking in your language? Blame Jesus. You want to know what's happening here, What this wind was, where these these tongues of fire came from? Look at Jesus. This, This person that you said was just a man that you just crucified 50 days ago. Look at Jesus. David prophesied not only that God would provide a Savior, but that he would conquer both sin and death and be seated at the right hand of God. Peter calls the people in action. Look at verse 36. He says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucify. He boldly says, Jesus is the Christ and you have crucified him. The word translated as no in Greek is in the imperative mood, which means that it's not merely an appeal to accept an offer. It's a direct commandment from God. You see, people is not just, Peter's not just giving these people an option. We tend to think, okay, we tend to think this. I don't know how many times I've heard this. At camp, or in a a, a worship service. Come to Jesus. Please, come to Jesus. Please, accept the forgiveness of your sins. Please come. It's this gentle appeal. Please come. But that's not what the Bible says. The way that this is written, again, in Greek, is what's called in the imperative mood, which means it is an absolute commandment. This is not a gentle appeal. This is an absolute command. Repent and submit your life to Christ. This is not a gentle invitation. This is a commandment. Peter is echoing the words of Jesus in Matthew four seventeen, where he says, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. I want you to think about this, that we're not invited to repent to follow Christ. We are commanded to repent and follow Him. To reject the gospel is to reject the most loving and genuine command of God. What are, the, what, are the, what are the two greatest commandments? We learned this in the Old Testament, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? And number two, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, guess what? Those aren't the greatest commandments anymore. The greatest commandment according to the New Testament, according to Jesus himself, is repent to, the, to me as your Lord and acknowledge that I am the master of your life. The first and second commandments cannot be achieved or not even possible if you don't submit your life to Christ. He says, you must repent. You must lay yourself, your selfish, selfish self across to the side and say, God, you are going to be the Lord of my life. This is not a gentle appeal. This is a commandment. You will submit to me. The day is going to come. It may not be now. You may hold out until your life is over. And when you're standing before God, Philippians 2 says that you will take a knee and you will acknowledge that Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And in that moment, there will be a question asked of you. He will say either you are a sheep, you are one of my children, or you are a goat, you're a pretender. You see, we live in this self-love generation, this self-care generation. You know, the irony of of all the things we've learned about psychology and the human brain is that we actually haven't fixed anything. We've created a bunch of labels to make ourselves feel special. Oh, I have this mental disorder or I have this mental illness, or I am this Enneagram or I'm this Myers-Briggs or I'm this, that, whatever. The only thing that is important, the only definition that actually matters to you, that matters in all of this, is either you are a child of God or you are not. That's the only thing that matters. Your trauma is not justification for your rebellion against God. Someone's hurting you is not justification for you. You define this command to not give your life to Christ. I'm sorry. It doesn't matter what someone has done to you. It doesn't matter what you think about yourself. This is the greatest commandment. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That means to turn 180, degree, 180 degrees the other direction. The words that he says here is that, Therefore, let all of the house of Israel know. Accept this as fact, because it is fact. And as a result, we see an authentic, genuine response. In verse 37, it says, Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what, sh- where- what shall we do? This sounds like a soft response if you just read it the way that it's written. What's not communicated here is actually how that is it's written. That this implies in the original language that they were overcome with grief and desperation for a solution they realized they had been confronted with the reality of who they were as a person. That they were the ones that put Christ on the tree. They put Him on the cross. They had defied the commandment of God to repent. So they they called back in utter desperation. What are we going to do? What do we do? What do we do? We're going to find out how this all plays out next week. But I want you to ask yourself these questions. I know that many of you grew up in the church and many of you know the Bible. But when God moves around us, do you actually know it? Are you prepared to speak? Will you participate when the Spirit moves? Do you know His Word well enough to be able to step into that place and speak truth to generations? If we want God to move in our lives, we need to submit to the will of the Holy Spirit and and with purposeful waiting. We should be expecting for God to provide opportunities to speak the truth in powerful ways and not be surprised. When you walk with Jesus, when you chase Jesus and you're abiding, there's gospel opportunities all over the place. And I'm not talking about selling Jesus. I'm talking about authentically just being who you are. And the questions come. Hey, you're... I've noticed that there's something different about you. What's up with that? Well, let me tell you. You don't need a sales pitch. You need to be an authentic follower of Jesus. When God presents himself through us, we need to be ready with a biblical perspective. That means that not reading God's word is not an option. This has to be everything to us. You tired because you work a lot? Welcome to adulthood. You don't have enough time? Welcome to adulthood. Because if God can't, if, if Satan can't make you sin, he'll make you busy. Because if he can make you busy, he can make you tired. And guess what you do when you're tired? You do dumb stuff. You begin to believe lies like, you know what, I just need to blow off some steam. So I'm going to go out with my friends because I've been working hard. Or I'm going to stay at home and I'm going I'm to, Have a few to kind of take the edge off. Or I'm going to hide from godly community because, you know, people are hard. We must declare war on ourselves, accept the truth of Galatians chapter 6. He says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever man sows, that he will also reap. If he sows under the flesh, he will of the flesh reap corruption. But if he sows under the Spirit, he will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. So let us not grow weary while doing good. For in due time we will bear fruit if we do not lose heart. When we present the truth, we need to be bold to speak without holding back. We can't do this without the Holy Spirit in our life. We can't do this without the presence of truth through Scripture in our life. This is who we have been called to be. This is not a suggestion about the ideal life. This is a commandment for the people of God. Let me challenge you with this. The days of being casual with our faith and our holiness must be over. In order for us to walk in victory in a generation that is confused about who they are as people, we must be serious chasers of Jesus. We must be serious students of the word. We must be student, we must be serious disciple makers, not just salesmen. Who we will be in moments like this at Pentecost will be determined by how we wait. Do not defy the commandment of the Lord and say, I got this. I'll do this on my own. We have been down that road, many of us, and it is empty. Today is the day to make a decision about who you want to be and who you want to serve. If you have grown up in, your, grown up in the church and you think that you know Jesus, but there's no, there's no fruit in your life, there's no actual change in your life, I want you to reevaluate that decision. Because chances are, if there's no fruit, you're not saved. Jesus said, by your fruit you will know them. If you're not exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit, the Spirit may not be there. You may think that you're a sheep, but you're actually a goat. Because you know goat and sheep actually have similar mannerisms. It could be that you have gotten into adulthood, you've been working and you have fallen out of the rhythm of being in God's Word, I want to encourage you. The day starts when you go to bed tonight. So so make a plan to be in God's Word. Ask for accountability. Someone to text you and say, hey, what did you read today? Accountability doesn't have to be a big thing. It doesn't have to be a dirty word. It's simply two questions. When you call that, that person who you're holding accountable, what did you read today? And how can I pray for you? I'm not keeping tabs. I'm not making sure that you're doing everything, following all the rules. The Word will take care of that. What are you reading? How can I pray for you today? It could be that you have no idea what I'm talking about. You came in here because you heard about Reach either through uh, social media or you th- or heard it through BCM or, or um, you don't have a church home. I want to encourage you, if you don't know Jesus, or you've got questions about that, please come and talk to me. I promise I'm not scary. I won't hurt you. Sarah's like, eh. I don't know. Or, or talk to Taylor. Because I want you to know Jesus. He changes everything.